Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught J.P. Caslin. In 2019, hot on the heels of our maiden podcast with Richard Shotton, we spoke to J.P. Hansen. 50 episodes, two years and one wedding later, he's back, conveniently rebranded with a new name, a new manifesto and a scintillating smorgasbord of, we hope, controversial opinions. It's not all new though, J.P. remains CEO of Rouser a strategic consultancy firm in Stockholm. He shares his approach to strategy in The Drum, the IPA's F-Works, Marketing Week, and his own popular strategic scroll, the imminently available Castlin Manifesto. This latest manifesto promises to be more provocative and controversial than ever, so it seems apt that Call to Action has been given the exclusive coming right up. JP says, unlike most strategists, I'm both a marketer and a lawyer, which usually puts me on par with the devil in most people's eyes. There's only selling insurance left to complete the set. Welcome back to the show, JP. Thank you very much, my friend. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm well. I'm very well. That's excellent. No, it's a pleasure to be back. An absolute pleasure. Looking forward to it. Well, we've got seven more quick-fire questions for you, JP. So, McDonald's or Burger King? McDonald's. Snape or Dumbledore? Snape. Easy. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Minecraft or Mass Effect? Mass Effect. Every day in the week and twice on Sundays. How brands grow or eat your greens? Oh, that's a low blow. <laughs> uh, because I love Weimer, I have, to, I have to go eat your greens. But how brands grow is a must-read. Okay, well played, well played. Right, tricky one. Mount Snowden or Dave Snowden? Ooh, that's a very good... I have to go with Dave because I haven't been able... I have a local mountain up where I have my house up north, which is really good. Uh, and Dave's work has been game-changing for me, so I'll have to go with Dave Snowden. That's a good one, though. I like that. Okay, two more. Deliberate or emergent? Um, On the whole, probably emergent, actually. And lastly, there's always one. Hanson or Castlin? Oh, cast! I have to say, cast. <laughs> and you know, you know, the first, or for, I was going to say, the first rule of marriage, but it's probably the only rule of marriage is happy wife, happy life. So yeah, cast. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Mm. Perfect. Amazing. Okay, great. Well, again, thanks for joining us, mate. I, I can't wait to get stuck into this exclusive look more accurately. Listen to the new, highly anticipated, revolutionary, provocative Castlin manifesto, but. Before we do, we normally ask how guests' careers started, but we've done that already in episode two. So so what have you been up to since then? Oh, I've been working with clients, mostly doing uh, global strategy primarily, um, and then writing the, the this year's uh, Castling Manifesto. It used to be called Rouser Manifesto, um, but I'll, I might come back to why it's called Castle now. But um, writing a lot uh, and then 
also doing a whole lot of research in complexity theory for a future project. And then just, you know, trying to get out of this whole COVID malarkey with my head intact. Yeah. Um, what about you? How, how, have, how has the uh, COVID treated you? Oh, it's been terrible, mate. It's been absolutely bloody horrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, uh, relatively, we are unscathed, fortunately. But there's been a lot of unity mm. off the back of it, as well as a lot of suffering. Isolated talks obviously came out of it, which is a, a wonderful thing that you played a part in. So that was great. But it was only 10 months ago that we were in Dublin together yeah. prior to lockdown 1.0. Oh, yeah, those were the days. Those were the days. Yeah. Looking forward to doing that again. Yeah, I am. I am. Well, we had we had the Colin Lewis fried chicken tour of Dublin. Mm-hmm. And Guinness, uh, Guinness in Dublin, of, of course. course. You know, as one must do. And then the next day, as a keynote, you announced... The new manifesto was was coming. So, mm. to be totally blunt, where the bloody hell is it? <laughs> How much longer do we have to wait? And what's it about? Uh, so it's I'm finishing a couple of things. Uh, I'm looking to finish it probably next week, uh, and then it'll like to be published towards the end of the month. If you're a listener to this podcast, if you send us an email at hello at rouser.se, so that's R O U S E R, so hello at rouser.se. We'll send you the PDF for free. Uh, you won't save your email for anything. We'll just put put it into an Excel file, send you the thing, and then delete it. Or you can buy it on Substack later. But uh, no, so it's it's going to come soon. And what it's about is, well, it's it started out as as it always does is um, sort of my thoughts in writing. Although originally it was it was mine and, and uh, then colleague called Gary Rivers, who's now called Gary Force, and it was just our thoughts in writing. And then uh, this year more than anything it's it's turned into a polemic of sorts so it's it's basically a critique of tradi- traditional strategic doctrine and a couple of things that have reached almost almost um gospel levels of status in our industry and i'm basically looking at that and, and trying to see if we can get somewhere a bit better as an industry so that's coming and it deals with emergent strategy as you sort of slightly referenced in the beginning um mm. you know positioning differentiation uh, strategic thinking, uh, going to complexity a fair bit. Uh, I look at the works of Bennett and Field, for example, and a bunch of other stuff. And it, it is going to be, I, I really do think it's going to be considered quite provocative in places. But, uh, you know, again, just trying to get to a better place. Yeah, there's potentially loads to discuss. So in my attempt to put it in a logical order, mm-hmm. your previous manifesto, which I remain a huge fan of, led with what was called strategy first. Now, to show our hand, strategy first is reflective of our own approach yeah. to marketing at GASP under what we call proper marketing. Mm-hmm. But to quote your new manifesto, the question of whether strategies must be defined in advance and therefore in all cases come first is not as crystal clear as one might initially be led to believe. Yes. Tell me more. Well, it, it, it depends on, you have to put the caveat in there, that it depends on where you are in the company's life cycle. If you're starting out a company, then you need to have a strategy first or some sort of semblance of a deliberate strategy, whether that's a business model or structure or something. But if you're looking at, let's say, a, a project, then if you're dealing with what is called complex adaptive systems, in other words, complexity, and I can explain, I, I probably have to explain what that means later, but yeah, um, 
it might be that you actually need to run par- parallel experiments and you actually need to try shit out. Um, and you're not going to do the traditional deliberate thing of, of you know, diagnostics and then do the, create the strategy, which is typically some sort of plan, let's be honest, with programming in it. In other words, activities planned in advance, and then you're going to run the thing and do it. Um, and it's just because what is called deliberate strategy, which is the traditional strategic approach, it doesn't really work all that well in practice as, as people love to believe because it makes a f- fair few sort of presumptions uh, about not only your own company, but but the market, such as, for example, if we create the thing, then everyone will understand what it means, sort of share the, the values of that. Everyone would execute it accordingly. There will be no external interference, so on and so forth. In reality, of course, what happens is that you try something out and then you see what happens and then you adapt, basically. And as soon as you start adapting, you're in the realm of emergence strategy. Uh, and you could, in, in certain cases, you could, if, if there's a pre-existing strategic structure, uh, in other words, if you're not starting out from fresh, but you're actually working with an existing company, it might actually be a point to running parallel safe-to-fail experiments and then seeing what works and what doesn't work. And then you basically you scale the stuff that does work and you dampen the stuff that doesn't work. And that's in and of itself that doesn't necessarily need a deliberate strategy per se. Yeah. To quote you, you just said that you might have to, quote, try shit out, which, mm. which again, I'm, I'm all for. And to me, that's slightly reflective of something like, say, the JWT planning guide. Mm. There's still a diagnosis stage, but yeah. ultimately, you're not claiming that if you do X, then Y will definitely happen. It's a constant and an evolving process. Yeah, I mean, there are various ways of running experiments. I think that uh, the best way to do it is to run experiments that not only run in parallel, but they can actually be sort of uh, contradictory. Because if you look at traditional deliberate strategy, if you run experiments, they tend to be sequential. So you do one thing and then you try another thing out and then so on and so forth. Whereas if you're working with emergent strategy, you're going to run experiments in parallel. Okay. But it is basically that. And uh, actually, I might as well explain the whole thing about complexity because it illustrates the problem. So as you alluded to, if you, in nature, there are three kinds of systems, right? So you have chaotic systems. Everyone knows what chaos is. Up is down. There are no you know, causalities, uh, anything like that. It's just literally chaos, right? We all know that. Um, but then you have ordered systems. So ordered systems are systems in which, as you pointed out, if you do A, it will lead to B. And not only that, but it will happen every single time, right? This is where we can have best practice because the, the system, the, the A leading to B, is basically obvious. Everyone knows it, and we can define best practice. Ordered systems can also be complicated. So complicated means that if we do A, then B, C, or D will happen. B, C, or D will happen every time, but it might be B, it might be C, it might be D. Now, because we have various things that might happen, we cannot create a best practice, but we can create a good practice, right? Now, traditionally, this is how strategy has worked. We are taught, and this is going back to the Industrial Revolution and so forth, uh, we have been taught all through our lives that if we do A, then B will happen. And importantly, if it doesn't, it's our fault, right? That's that leads to imposter syndrome and so on. But, you know, if you're taking mathematics at school or physics or whatever it might be, you're basically, there's a correct answer to everything, right? And within strategy, this goes back to the sort of the markets of old where there would be quite few companies and differentiation was quite easy. You could look at the sort of players and then just go, oh, we're going to do something different. Then there is this thing called complexity. Now, complexity is often taken by, in lack of better terms, lay people 
as a higher state of complicatedness or something that's really, really difficult to grasp, right? That's not what it is. A complex system is one in which there are no linear causalities. If we do A, then all kinds of shit will happen. And the same thing will not happen twice unless by accident. Now, what this means is that if we take you know, the traditional strategic approach of we know what's going to happen and it's going to happen like this and we're going to, this is the program we're going to do and so on, it doesn't work in complexity because you cannot know. It's inherent in the system. Basically, everything to do with humans, uh, whether that's organizations or uh, markets, is going to be complex. Now, not all of it. Uh, certain things like you know, manufacturing processes, for example, that will be ordered. If you put the thing in, the other thing will come out. And if you are to have any success uh, or if we have you know, half competent engineers, ideally, the same sort of stuff will be put in and come out every single time, right? So otherwise, it might be a bit of a problem if you put in one thing and a different thing comes out all the time, right? <laughs> I used to work there. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We've all worked there in some form or another, right? Um, a good example of this, actually, is that we have all seen, I'm sure, quoted the um, data to decision study from, I think it was 2016 that basically says that creativity is an 11 times multiplier, right? We're all, all familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the problem is that although that is true, we can't really go into a creative agency and go, hello, I'd like an 11 timer, please. <laughs> because anyone who's ever worked with anything to do with creativity knows it doesn't work like that. We can improve the odds of something happening, but we can never guarantee it. Yeah. And that's and that's basically why when you and that's because of complexity. So when we work in complexity, we need to try shit out. It's that's just the way we have to do things. Now, the complex system is it's not causal, but it is dispositional. In other words, it's predisposed to go a certain way. So, for example, we know that buying behavior, buy patterns follows negative binomial distribution. If we have listened to a second of Weimer speak or you know, Byron or whoever. So we know that in every, any given time period, a brand will have some buyers who's going to buy you a lot and a lot of buyers is going to buy you a little, right? But the thing is, we cannot predict who is going to buy what, when, and how much. And that's the thing. Uh, yeah, mic drop. Uh, but, and that's, that's literally it, right? So when we're trying stuff out, we can play within the rules that we know, the heuristics that we know, yeah. but we can never guarantee stuff. So we need to try stuff, stuff out. Yeah, even just explaining the definitions of those three systems, I can immediately think of procurement departments who expect Mm. agencies like us to explain and define their in-house creative process in an ordered system, whereas the reality is it is more like the complexity one that you described. But I'll Let's tuck into that later. One thing which is kind of in line with the point I've just made is is that semantics Mm -hmm. are the root of many of Mm -hmm. the problems in our industry, what people mean when they say a certain word. So whether it's brand or whether it's yeah. strategy or whatever, I think the trouble is you often find, and I think Twitter mm-hmm. has sadly often quite a hostile space where people tend to attack each other when actually in reality, face-to-face, they'd probably agree. But because of the limited context of a tweet, we're arguing over definitions more than we're arguing over what someone you know truly means. So yeah, is there a definition of strategy that you are happy to use or to share as the you know definitive yes you very rightly point out strategy seems to be one of those things that people are really really um firm in their beliefs of what strategy is but they kind of presume that everyone either shares that view or basically that they're wrong right which is a bit troublesome but 
for me, the only way to define strategy is, uh, it's a bit verbiose, but I, I say that it's a balance between uh, optionality and obligation between delivered strategy and emergent strategy. <clears throat> and I do go into that, uh, the reasons why quite a bit in the manifesto. But my point is that nothing will ever ever be fully emergent or fully deliberate. It will always be a mix in between or a place in between. And the context will basically define where you find yourself on that scale. Um, and that has to do with what kind of company you are, what kind of market you're in, what kind of strategy you're doing, um, and so on and so forth. And th- I think that's the, 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 the a more practical um, and realistic definition of strategy. It, you know, albeit quite verbiose, as I said. And do, and do you think that perhaps most strategists only focus on what you would call deliberate strategy and actually the, the reality and the complexity of emergent strategy needs or warrants a bit more attention and certainly a bit more recognition in the textbooks and literature that we all study? Yes, I would say so. Uh, I ran a, of course, highly unscientific, but nonetheless... Um, survey before well as i was writing that chapter in the manifesto and i asked people about emergent strategy and it was something like 11 percent of respondents that had actually heard the term at all and there were about four percent of people who actually actively worked with it and i think the problem is that you know nothing against marketers in any stretch of the imagination but we tend to read marketing text. I mean, obviously, right? But nonetheless, and a lot of the emergent stuff comes out of business strategic discourse and, and people such as Henry Mintzberg. And most marketers probably haven't read, you know, the rise and fall of strategic planning or of strategies deliberate and emergent, although they probably should. But there's also, as you sort of alluded to earlier, there's also the problem of you're always going to have a procurement department or something along those lines asking you, okay, so what are you going to do and what's the return going to be? So you're going to have to produce some sort sort of form or another, a plan or another formal document anyway, right? So people tend to gravitate towards that. And of course, as well, if you're working within uh, campaigns, then you have planners, right? They're not, they call themselves strategists every now and again, but they're literally planners, right? Most of them call themselves planners. So what they do is, is quite obvious just from the, their titles. So there's that as well, but if you're working with anything to do with creativity, you're going to do some emergent stuff anyway. You're going to try stuff out, whether that's, you know, an angle when you're shooting a TV commercial or the creative itself, you're going to try different ideas out, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you're trying stuff out to see what happens and, and what the response might be and how it interacts with reality and so on and so forth, then you're in the realm of emergence, whether you sort of are aware of it or using the term or not. So it is already something that people are doing. It's just that they're not necessarily doing it on purpose, so to say. And, and if they're not doing it on purpose, they can't really reap all the benefits of it that, that are available, so to speak. Yeah. Do you believe that there are certain job roles within our industry that are more familiar, even without knowing it, of something that could be described more as emergent? And the, the reason I ask is you've just mentioned creatives there as an example. Mm-hmm. A poster we have up in our reception in our office that sadly we haven't been in for, for far too yeah. long because of lockdown is mm-hmm. a lovely line from Bill Birnbach. Now, this is taking it out of context, admittedly, mm-hmm. but he talks about how we're not following patterns. We're not finding and replicating patterns. He says that mm-hmm. flowering on freshness and withering on imitation, where what was effective one day for that very reason will not be effective 
the next because it has lost the maximum impact of originality. So he's he is admittedly talking directly about advertising. But yeah. I think that point is true, broadly speaking, of everything that we do, whether you're a planner or a strategist. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting, I can't remember who it was who said this, but I was talking to someone who, who brought the point that, uh, a complexity scientist, by the way, who said that um, Ogilvy was complicated. In other words, he, he, he saw markets as ordered, whereas Burnback saw them as complex, uh, mm. whether sort of intentionally or not. But it is very true because, and, and it is admittedly a, a large challenge for anyone working for an agency or consultancy as well, is that because, as I mentioned before, in complex systems, the same thing will not happen twice in the same way. It basically means that we cannot take what we've done and expect it to work in the same way again, because everything is context specific and context is ever changing. But of course, when you come to the clients, what, are, what are, I mean, what's the first thing they're going to ask for? It's where's your portfolio? What have you done before? And can you do the same thing again, please? Mm-hmm. Right. And not on, not only is sort of it's inherently guaranteed not to work the same way, but exactly to your point, you're going to lose original originality as well. So it is a huge challenge, and it's something I touch upon quite a bit in the manifesto. Is this thing of occasionally you might end up in situations where deliberate strategy is quite demonstrably not the right way to do things in theory, but it may nonetheless be a sort of practical necessity for various mm. reasons. Not going to why, but um, you know, again, it's 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 difficult these things. Yeah, and presumably, as with anything, there's there's a blend between the two. Yes. Um, again, you, you you never said at the far end. It's always going to be a blend of deliberate stuff and emergent stuff. And if you work in creativity, you're going to be you're going to have to do more emergent stuff because you're working with a lot of complex things. It's similar, if you work in uh, product innovation, for example. But if you work in finance, it's you know stuff is going to be ordered, and you're going to be able to, you know, do all kinds of stuff the same way all the time. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just you're working in different systems, and that that's the first thing you need to do as strategists is, is understand what different parts are there to a problem, and what's complex, what's ordered, and you know, how can I deal with that? Can we sort of split it into different parts? Yeah, because that's also important. To, it's important to know it is that. Just because there is complexity, it doesn't mean that everything is complex. Um, mm. So you, you just need to understand what parts are what and then deal with them accordingly. Yeah. Well, if only it was actually that easy. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, it's, there are ways of doing it, of course. But but uh, the, the fact of the matter is that complexity is not something that a lot of, I don't want to say marketers because it's true for people in general and business people in general. Like complexity is something that not a lot of people know about. And that's perfectly understandable because the, the traditional strategic doctrine goes back, you know, years and years and years and years. And we're talking, I mean, strategy itself is probably a couple of thousand years old, at least, if not more. Whereas complexity science is relatively a relatively new field and goes back maybe 40, 50 years. So in comparison, in comparison, it's just like a sneeze in history. But it is one of those game game changers that once you understand complex adaptive systems, you realize why all of the stuff that people are, not all of it, but a lot of the stuff that people are struggling with and have been struggling with throughout history and perhaps even more so today, why they are struggling with it and understanding yeah. what you're dealing with is a huge help to that. And there's, there's a, I'll give away a, a slight, it's all in the manifesto, but I'll give away a, a very sort of an easy heuristic. 
And that's if you come up, come up against a problem and there are competing hypotheses of what the solution might be. And they're all coherent, but you cannot determine which one is the correct one within a sort of normal you know, time frame. In other words, you're not looking at a millennium, or, but you know, a day or a couple of hours or whatever. Then you are likely dealing with a complex system. And if you're dealing mm-hmm. with a, likely dealing with a complex system, you need to treat it as such. You need to run experiments and this, that, and the other. I, I think a lot of what we do, therefore, almost warrants having a caveat yeah. to reference the complexity and even context. I mean, context gets missed, and yes, context is king is a is a very deliberate part of your manifesto. Yes. So in complexity, everything is context specific. Nothing is is context free. And the problem is that most advice that you see, whether it's from, you know, columnists or people on social media or whatever, everything is context, you know, free. They just go, it's all like this and all companies need to do that. And it's never like that. Uh, That's the problem. Um, And, but it, but it, there's also this thing, you know, how traditionally or historically the essence of strategy has been defined as sacrifice, you know, going back to Ogilvy and people like Michael Porter. Now, I would argue that because if you're aware of complexity, you know, that's just a stupid way of looking at things. So what I've, or my view, at least at the moment, although I tend to change my my mind a lot of the time, but um, I would say that the essence of strategy is actually to move from equiprobability. In other words, you're trying to improve the odds of success. You're not trying to guarantee anything. And I think that's a more honest way of, of approaching it. It might not be what the client always wants to hear, but it is the more honest thing to do. And it's probably the one that's going to be more, most realistic. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that some people are aware of or must have been mm-hmm. aware of already. And we've already mentioned Burnback, so let's just use him as another example. But his wonderful Avis, We Try Harder campaigns, mm-hmm. lots of people use that as an example of the pratfall effect, but the yeah. pratfall effect only really became a titled effect after the work was done. So it's one of those things where someone is acting intelligently without knowing the definition that has followed yeah. to describe what they've done. So I think there is there is a there is perhaps an element of that, yeah. but it certainly needs to be written down. And well, I mean, that, that that's one of the things when you deal with complexity is that that um, because there are no linear causalities, you can never forecast things. You can never tell the future. Uh, however, you can determine plausibility of causality after the after the event, which is you know what most strategic analysis is. Hence, why people like Michael Porter famously are really good at you know explaining things in retrospect, but they haven't done a forecast in their fucking lives, right? Um, and um, I mean, that's literally true for Porter. He was famous, or he is famous, I suppose, he's still alive, uh, for not doing any forecasts or anything like that. He was just looking at you know history with all the benefits of hindsight. And it's the same thing here: is that he did the thing sort of implicitly knowing that this would be a good idea because insert reason here. And then in retrospect, people have gone, oh, this is because this is this thing that we have now defined. Yeah. Um, And, you know, that's perfectly fine. But it is another thing as well, which which is worth mentioning in in the sense of of speaking to clients. Actually, I should maybe have mentioned that before when I was talking about it. But it is if you are working for an agency and you think that strategy is sacrifice and we should just focus on this one thing, you know, essentially putting all your eggs into one basket, that's really difficult for a client to do because it's kind of like making a bet. So imagine that you have three boxes in front of you, right? And you're asked to put money on which box contains, let's say, a carrot. 
right? You can put all your money, uh, or uh, let's say a fiver. You can put a fiver on each box, you know, or you can split it and put 10 on one and five on one, or you can put all 15 on, on, on one of them, right? Mm. So what do you do? Okay, that's easy enough. It's just a fiver. But what if you have to do the same thing with your mortgage? And not only that, but maybe the house. And maybe the houses of, let's say, 100 employees, 1,000 employees. All of a sudden, that bet is a lot more difficult to make, right? It's really, it's really easy if you don't have to bear the cost of potential failure, which is you know, what consultants and, and you know, agency people or whatever, they don't have to do really, right? But it is sort of it is difficult for a client to just go okay yes this idea which this you know creative agency or whatever has come up with that's you know we're going to tailor our entire company around that idea we're going to bet all the money that we have and have saved up on this one horse because this company is telling us to do that that's a difficult bet however if you go we're going to try certain things out and we think it's for the better and actually we're going to you know do some risk mitigation and so on and so forth then the client might actually go. Oh, that that's that feels a lot better. It's, it's less risky and probably going to get better returns anyway. If you do it properly, you are going to get better returns. But but anyway, I, I really like your previous point about um, looking back and context becomes less relevant. Context is fixed. If you're looking back and trying to find correlations, causalities, whatever it may be, then the context is fixed in, and defined by the time and the thing that you're examining. Yes, I mean that's that. Uh, yeah, I wish I'd thought of that. That's a very good way of putting it. That in retrospect, context is fixed. Actually, I'm going to probably steal that to be honest. But I, I mean, that's a, that's a lovely way. Of, that's a lovely way of putting it. If you're working in the present or you're looking at the future, like the context is ever changing. Whereas if you're looking back in history, then yes, you're absolutely right. The context is is set and fixed. And it's a lot easier to then go this led to this and whatever. Although it it never tends to be this goes to this because it's. This also one thing is which is important to understand about complex systems is that if you're working with an ordered system, then the system itself is equal to the sum of all the parts. In other words, if you take one actor player with an, an ordered system and you zoom out, there's no new information, right? In a mm. complex system, the the whole is larger than the sum of all the parts. So if you zoom out, you're going to get more and more information. In other words, the behavior of a single ant is not equal to the behavior of a colony. But what it also means is that you cannot reduce then a complex system. You cannot start with a colony and then reduce it all the way down to the end, just the way that you cannot look at negative banal distribution and reduce it down to an individual buyer because that buyer could be anywhere on the curve, right? Yeah. And that's the thing as well, is that if you're looking at complex adaptive systems, you cannot reduce it. And that, you know, people try to do that anyway because they don't understand complexity. And this is where you end up with people who, you know, come up with all kinds of horseshit like, oh, well, <laughs> the success of this multi-billion dollar company is all down to this one strategy or flywheel or CRM or yeah, whatever it is. It's always like one thing and you just go, it's it's never any one thing. I think we're very guilty of just overanalyzing the shit out of anything. And, and I gave a very rambly talk to the University of Lincoln a few weeks ago. <laughs> and one of the criticisms I had of our industry, and I, I definitely heard this somewhere else, so I'm actually only repeating an example, but it was along the lines of if you took 100 monkeys and gave them £100 each and pushed them all into a casino, <laughs> with the caveat that let's assume they can place a bet, 99% of them are going to come out broke, but one lucky monkey is going to come out, you know, minted. Yeah. And then all of a sudden... 
we're going to write blogs and articles about what that monkey had for breakfast, you know, how to eat like a, yeah. a million, a millionaire. It's just nonsense. And the trouble is because we, we all kind of have this human desire to understand things yeah. exactly as you're saying in terms of ordered systems to find these patterns that then become our guide for best practice there's an element there where there's obviously mm. a flaw yeah and not only that but let's say that you uh, actually went into the casino and observed the monkey betting on you know roulette or whatever it was right and it so happened that the the wheel came up on red like five times in a row and if you knew nothing about roulette you'd probably go oh the the odds of it coming up on red is, is a lot, you know, they're better than it coming up on black, or maybe it only comes up, comes up on red or whatever, right? And it's the same thing is that if you're just looking for patterns and you don't understand the whole, um, I mean, you are, in complexity, you are going to look at emergent patterns, but you're going to look at it sort of higher up. You can look at the system as opposed to the to sort of the individual players, so to speak. Yeah. Um, again, you're just not going to get it. If you try to reduce a complex system, it's inherently impossible and you're going to end up with a fallacy. And that's unfortunately where a lot, if not most, column inches end up. Mm. You know, when people go, it's all like this or it's all like that. And the only thing you need to do to succeed is this one thing that, oh, by the way, I am selling to. Here's my website. Yeah. Do you have sympathy? I, I mean, I do have sympathy for agencies who use processes and frameworks that you might think are hugely flawed. So say the idea that strategy is sacrificed because speaking as someone who runs a small independent agency in many ways they are a means to an end yes and it's it's obviously very easy to get caught up with the means itself and not the actual final output well i mean there's a famous uh terry pratchett quote which is um he got alzheimer's and he put the thing up he wrote about it on his website i think it was and he got a lot of well wishes but he also got a fair few emails from snake oil salesmen <laughs> and he said i wouldn't dismiss them so easily because I've never seen a rusty snake. <laughs> and basically the point is that if you're working off of those kinds of frameworks, I'm not saying that they that they don't have value in the same way that I'm not saying that, you know, a part of a company's success couldn't be a flywheel or something else. My point is merely that it's not going to be the only thing you need to do or the only thing that's contributed to the, to the success of the company. It's a bunch of things. And, uh, you know, even the, the people who have, you know, who are known as the, the bullshitters of our industry, they might have a couple of points. The problem is that not only is the sort of signal to noise ratio quite poor, but but also there's so much other stuff that you just need to, to get out of it. And you should never, again, you should never believe that it's all down to any one thing, whether that's, you know, starting with a Y or a flywheel or insert thing here, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and, and it's equally so hard to tie yourself up in knots. In fact, you tied me up in a knot not, not long ago. I remember sharing a, um, a Star Wars quote of only the Sith deal in absolutes. Yeah, and, uh, which is in and of which itself. Is, an which you very kindly pointed <laughs> out was in itself an absolute. So, but yeah, yeah it's, which it's, means that Obi-Wan Kenobi must have been a yeah. Sith. As well. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. And there it is. Yeah. The idea of there being the theory and the practice side of things, mm-hmm. and that's quite central as a, as, a, as a theme throughout the manifesto. Theory in many ways is context-free, whereas yeah. practice clearly isn't. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's when we're looking at it. Uh, my point is that um, if something works in practice, it's completely irrelevant whether it holds up in theory or yes. not. Um, but I speak a bit about, it's a term that I, I learned in law school, which is praxis. So it's not practice, it's praxis. And the difference is it goes back to Aristotle, but basically you have theory, which is just, you know, thinking about things without doing, doing anything. 
Then you have practice, which is just doing stuff without thinking. And then you have or experimentation, if we're honest. And then you have praxis, which is basically theory-informed practice. So you think about things, you evaluate, and you learn, and you improve. And that's basically where you need to end up. You need to try, if you know, whether that's deliberate stuff or emergent stuff, you need to sort of learn from what you're doing. And the problem is that oftentimes people don't do that. Either they go full in on agile and A-B testing, and they end up in porn, right? Because that's eventually where you're going to end up if you do perpetual A-B testing. Um, or it might be that they just go, well, this is the way that we've always done things. By the way, that's true both for companies that have done a lot of agile and companies that have done a lot of traditional stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, it, it's learning without going into, you know, the, the learning organization and that book because it's just a bit like, you know, what are they called? Those like gongs that people bang and it's supposed to heal your chakra or like that yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of pseudoscience bullshit. But, but anyway, no, it's 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 the reflective process and reflective uh, reflective practice, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and that's, in my view anyway, that's basically the key. Yeah, okay, cool. This is on a, on a sort of side, just a, a quick note on that as well is that the, the thing is that you have to be humble and open about these things and try to learn from other people. And I've seen it, people dismiss bodies of knowledge because, for example, they might not uh, like the person who came up with it. I mean, that's that to me is a bit stupid. And I've even seen people who sort of wear their ignorance as sort of a Philistine badge of honor. But it's it's about trying to learn as much as possible and just trying to get as good as possible and improve the odds of success as best you can. And that means you have to be open to different things. It doesn't mean you shouldn't think critically. You should think critically. That's key. But you need to read broadly and not just read the kind of stuff that you like and confirm your beliefs. You need to understand the the opposing view, if nothing else. And Christopher Hitchens once said that, you know, how do you know what you think you know? If you come up against a, a, a sort of a, a flat earther, how can you prove that your earth is round? And that kind of stuff is worth thinking about. If I believe in something, how sure am I of, am I of that which in which I believe? And actually, it might be a point to reading the oppo- opposing view as well, just to sort of, you know, hone your own argument, if nothing else. Because eventually working with clients, the shit is going to come up. Yeah, I really like the way you articulated that. And I've heard Bob Hoffman actually say something remarkably similar about it's all about improving the odds of your success. Yes. No one can ever absolutely know if something's going to be successful or not. And then you just have to frame it. And that's that's a bit of a challenge because you're always going to be up against idiots who are just going to go, well, if you just invest in us, we'll guarantee a return of X percent yeah. or whatever it might be. Yeah. Although they can't really. And, you know, but, and, and, and why wouldn't you choose that over the guy that's saying he's not sure, but he thinks this might happen? And, and therein <laughs> is the game of truth yeah, that's happening exactly. under the table that, um, yeah is, is it, it, yeah exactly and, and yeah but uh you know at the end of the day if you uh as long as you can look yourself in the mirror then you know that's fine i suppose yeah well i, I don't want to rip too much out of this and take the piss from an exclusivity perspective but is there anything else in particular and i'm thinking about the elephant in the room? The other elephant in the room. <laughs> if I'm being brutally honest and blind, I think the biggest thing holding people back is the belief that we work in order systems and the traditional strategic doctrine coming out of people like Michael Porter. He, he's vastly overrated in my book anyway, but but this idea of if we just do A, it'll lead to B. But there are certain, because I know where you're getting at and I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll get to it. Wasn't that tough, mm, yeah, but I mean, there are certain things that are established as you know, for various reasons, as sort of industry truths and any criticism thereof or critical look of whatever it might be is taking 
taken almost as blasphemous, which is problematic because not only does it, it can be a blocker to future research, but the problem is that if we discovered that a theory is perhaps not as strong as originally believed, everything that's built upon that theory kind of stumbles as well. It's Mm. kind of like you're trying to build a house upon an uneven ground. And that is, you know, now that you've led me up the proverbial garden path, I think that's where we end up because we need to talk about Bennett and Field. And I have in the manifesto uh, an in-depth critique of the works of Bennett and Field that I've written together with a guy called Andrew Wilshire, who I think might be on this show, yes, right? Yes, he is coming up. Yes, that's going to be a really interesting one because when it comes to data analysis and anything to do with like modeling and stuff, he's basically a savant. He's a fucking genius. No, so what we've done is we've looked, we've gone back and looked at the Bennett and Field stuff and I'm going to become persona non grata for saying a couple of things uh, and I'm going to be probably perceived as, as taking away a few toys from marketers. The problem is I think we need to have this conversation. I think it's time. So the problem with the data in Bennett and Fields' work, going back to the long and the short of it and so on, has been quite, I wouldn't say that it's been sort of in-depth, discussed in depth because there's nothing that I've seen at least, not to blow you know my own horn too much, but there's nothing that is even close to as in-depth as the stuff that me and Andrew have done. But the fact that the data isn't really that good has been brought up before by people like Lucian Tressler uh, and others. And Les Bennett wrote a reply to, I think, Lucian's or Harry's uh, critique of that. But the problem is that it's it's an unescapable issue with the data that they have, right? So as I know that you know, Giles, and I'm sure that, that all of your listeners know, but the Bennett and Field data comes out of the IPA data bank, right? So we are looking at um, essentially the best of the best. Yeah, I know that, that Les has said that there are some real clunkers in there, but we're nonetheless looking at the kind of brands that can afford to not only run the kinds of campaigns that are in these awards, but also can afford to set aside money and people to actually write a, a award entry. So we have already a selection bias effect uh, or a selection bias problem. Not only that, but you're looking at all kinds of businesses doing all kinds of modeling in all kinds of ways. And although in the IPA's case, uh, you do have modelers to look at their uh, econometric modeling. The problem is that even the slightest deviations can cause all kinds of shit down the line. And this is Andrew's area, so I'm not going to go into that uh, much further, but it's nonetheless something that needs to be uh, brought up. Then on top of that, you're looking about, you know, we were talking about semantics before, but this problem with how do we define language? So brand can be defined in a gazillion different ways. ROI can be defined in a gazillion different ways. It can be calculated in a gazillion different ways. Effectiveness itself can be defined in a gazillion different ways. Mm-hmm. Then you're looking, so you're looking at essentially biased data that is defined in all kinds of different ways. Not only that, but you're looking at people who are trying to win awards and grading their own homework, which means it's going to be skewed a certain way. And then you're trying off of this, create context-free rules. And they are rules. They're not principles. I sometimes hear this. People go, oh, they're not, you know, they're not rules. They're guidelines or principles as if, you know, they were in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. But 
the thing is, if you say that the balance, the optimum balance is, you know, 62.38 across all of retail, for example, that's not a principle. That's a fucking rule, right? I'm sorry to say, but it is a rule. That means that the research isn't descriptive, it's prescriptive. And basically what it means is that if you do this, then success will come. Now, sometimes when you point out that this is sort of an impossible claim, people say, well, you know, maybe it's, you know, it's not going to be harmful to do a, a 6238 or whatever it might be. But the problem is that because everything is context specific, we have no idea what the optimum balance for a branding question might be. So therefore, how so sort of how harmful it might be depends on how close to that optimum the brand is. And if we've only looked at certain kinds kind of brands, we cannot make any conclusions about different kinds of brands, which is problematic. I can talk about the data stuff all day, and, and I, I know that Andrew is going to be talking about it, so I don't want to get too much into it. But then we get to something that hasn't been addressed previously, and that is the basic premise of brand building versus activation is built upon this idea of emotional priming. It's in the long and the short of it. It's in basically every piece of subsequent work that they've done as far as I've seen, including their latest uh, piece that they did. I think it was for LinkedIn, but something to do with B2B anyway. And it comes out of Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure we've, we've seen this. Now, the problem with that is that there are certain things in Thinking Fast and Slow that have been challenged after the, the book was published, or a lot of things, if we're honest. I mean, psychologists had a replicability issue anyway. But, but the, the central problem is that this idea of priming, which is central to their work, has not only been challenged, but it's been wholly debunked. So if you look at this, and for example, there's a book written by a guy called Daniel Engberg. It's called The Irony Effect. And basically, he, he looked at what happened after the publication of, of Kahneman's book, and he noticed that this the primary research basically fell into scandal and uncertainty after the publication. And you had you know, leading figures within this, kind, within this field, uh, within this kind of research. They were discovered to be frauds. They made up claims. Most of the studies basically broke down when people tried to replicate them. And this is not that unsurprising because then a, a bunch of researchers, and you can read about this in, um, I think it's called Reconstructions of a Train Wreck, how priming research went off the rails. But they looked at what is called the R-index value. And the R-index value is not the same thing as the R-squared value in correlation analysis. The R-index value has to do with whether you can replicate something. And if the R-index value is below 50, mm -hmm. it basically means that all your findings were down to chance. Now, in the priming chapter in Kahneman's book, again, the work upon which Bennett and, and Field are basing their stuff, this idea of brand building versus activation, priming and then activating it, there were 12 studies. Out of these 12 studies, 11 had an R-index value of below 50. So basically, they do not stand up to scrutiny. They cannot be used as evidence. Now, I'm not saying that all of their stuff is wrong. That's not my point. My point is that you cannot make the kinds of claims that they're making off of that data and that reasoning. Right? Yeah. 
I mean, the stuff that we still know about, you know, how memory structures work, for example, that's all true. And the importance of net reach and, you know, a lot of stuff that's been confirmed and all kinds of stuff. But we cannot go to brands or clients and tell them that, you know, 60, 40 is the optimum rule and your brand building should be either X or Y. X being, you know, brand building or Y being activation. By the way, has any, I'm you know, I'm not a creative guy. I don't, I don't. I've run campaigns, but I'm not a you know planner. But how many campaigns only do one thing anyway? The very valid point. Mm. I think that's a point that um, I believe I've heard them make. I've certainly heard Mark Ritson make it on the brand management mini MBA. Yeah. But we've used that numerous times with clients. But to me, yeah. the biggest conclusion from that piece of work is to demonstrate, and, and this obviously has to be caveated with assuming you can. Uh, completely split brand and activation mm-hmm. is the fact that you need to be thinking about long and short, not long or short. Yes, um, and of course, yes. context is going to going to differ hugely, not just be- you know between different sectors mm-hmm. and industries and business sizes. Yeah, and, and and that's a completely valid point. The fact that there are different feedback loops, and you need to take into account both sort of long term effects and, and short term effects. I'm absolutely on board with yeah. that. Um, I've written about it in the past where I said that instead of brand building versus activation, you can look at it in terms of cash flow. So short term, what, what they would call activation would be acceleration of, of cash flow, whereas long term stuff will be stabilization of future cash flow. Yeah, that's all perfectly you know fine. And if that's your your take, then that's fine. I mean, the problem is how do you, again how do you do it in practice without it leading to promotions, all kinds of stuff. But nonetheless, again, no problems with that. Um, it's just, it's also a sort of a problem that I don't, don't discuss that much in the manifesto, but it's always been sort of a pet peeve of mine. And I've mentioned this before, but their work, and I don't think it's of their, of their doing, it's not their fault. And I, I need to, and I do sincerely mean this, I hope it doesn't come across as, you know, for Brutus is an honorable man, but, but Les and Peter are both like really smart guys. And, and, you know, I love them both. They're, they're amazing. But the problem is that, advertising effectiveness somehow became marketing effectiveness. Mm. And if you take the, you know, the famous chart that they have with like the sawtooth at the bottom and the staircase going up, the difference between short and long and the uh, the baseline sales growth and that kind of stuff. Right? Yeah. The problem is that we don't, and of course it's not, you know, it's not their fault because you basically wouldn't be able to run that kind of experiment. But the thing is that it might be that if we take the money from a short-term activation campaign, which, by the way, you can scale. The you know Grace Kite, for example, has written about this. You can absolutely scale short-term stuff. Eventually, you just need to increase your reach. That's fine, but you can scale short-term stuff. But let's take you take the money from the short-term stuff and then you put it into I don't know product development. What does that do for the long-term profitability of the brand? Yeah. Now, if you work within advertising, you don't have to consider that. If you work um, client side or higher up the you know proverbial food chain, you do need to think about that. And the problem is that, again, like I've literally been in situations with the global head of media where they will say, oh, we need to do 60-40. And I go, why? And they go, well, it's because it's in this thing. <laughs> now, I don't think, I mean, Les and Peter will be immediately saying to that person, like, okay, so that's not really what we meant. And you shouldn't just take that as a, but people do use it in such they a way. Do. I mean, I think, and that's a problem. Yeah. yeah, it is massively a problem. And I think that's the trouble with, um, 
in that in that example of the three people, Les and Peter are, are certainly not at fault for that person's uh, application of something they've read. But th- therein no. lies lies the problem of using an average anyway, because effectively that's what that sixty forty rule is. It's based on an average of. But also, I mean, it would it would be so helpful if they just share the data. Because the problem is that when you have a 60-40 split, we have no idea what the scatter plot looks like. And I know that people have asked to see that. And as far as I know, they haven't been allowed to. And the problem is that we have no idea whether it's a really, really tight fit or whether it's just a scatter shot of a shotgun blast in terms of the scatter plot. And if it's the latter, not the former, then we have an issue on top of it. Uh, and Andrew can speak a lot about a lot more about this than I ever could. But yeah, and uh, it's just, again, I'm I'm not... I'm not trying to dismiss their work in any way. I, you know, it's promising and it's heading in the right direction. I'm just saying that it probably needs to be taken with a grain of salt and probably challenge a bit more and see if we can get somewhere a bit better. It's a good first step, but let's let's not treat it as gospel. Let's actually look at you know what the demand is for our particular brands, clients, whatever it might be, and then just work off of the kind of stuff that matters. And another problem. This I was talking to someone about this and they'd run a campaign and it was, you know, according to all the rules, all the principles and so on and so forth. And the brand perception metrics didn't move. However, the sales were really good. And the brand manager nonetheless went, well, actually this was, this was a brand building campaign. Hence, we don't care about the sales. We just want to see the perception metrics move. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That's a bit of an issue too. So there are a bunch of issues. Jenny wrote, Jenny Romanik wrote about it for work, which she said that, this this idea of brand building and it's it's almost like an, an own goal. It creates a, a fair few problems. Yeah, especially when you try and sell it in. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And again, like underst- I understand the 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 benefit of it uh, as a sort of an analogy, if nothing else. But let's treat it as an analogy at least for the time being, and not, let's just not treat it as a concrete. This is the rule, and this is how we need to do things. It's it's just again, we're trying to create context-free rules in a context-specific world, and it doesn't work like that. And this is just another. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right to flag it. Again, it's another instance where someone is using a, a pattern that was discovered from the past. Well, assuming the pattern is even accurate, but let's part that bit for now and applying that, ex- expecting it to be the most effective route. But yeah. you know, to, to foolishly illustrate the point, the average person has one testicle, but launching a one testicle-shaped pants company would be idiotic if I was to do it. So. You know, average. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. It's a very, yeah, very good way of putting it. And again, it, it's just, you know, we have to take it for what it is and and um, look at the realities for our companies and then you know build upon it. And yeah, again, to their credit, I I, I am fully aware um, that they you know they both know that this is a work in progress, and I think that's how we need to treat it as well. Um, especially because we what we don't want to do is end up with it. Uh, being a blocker for future research, you know, established truth and so on. And it's also, of course, and this is, yes, this is a cheap shot, I admit, but, (laughs) you know, since the days of of the introduction of the long and the short of it, more people have, you know, become aware of this rule, one would imagine, right? Logically, that, that would have to be true. But nonetheless, overall effectiveness keeps going down. So either people are completely disregarding their work or the result of their work is not in the real world working the way that they had intended. Maybe there's, I haven't seen enough data, but it's, it's worth sort of thinking about. People in general don't interrogate the data enough as it is. So um, if nothing else, I think that's that's certainly a lesson everyone everyone can take. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, I will be 
really, really surprised if, if Les and Peter didn't just, I think they're aware of all these problems. I, I just, if they're always trying to get to a better place and, you know, they will get there eventually. And I have uh, no doubts uh, that they are like the, the two best guys to look into this. But it's, yeah, again, we just need to think of it as a work in progress, not established truth. Well, you wait. This time in a few years, people will be using the Castling Manifesto in in horrific ways and claiming yeah. complexity is the reason why they've failed yet again with their marketing strategy. Yeah. <laughs> or, more, or more likely just pointing out all the places where I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. that's, that's perfectly fine. I mean, the thing is that, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not claiming any position of, of, of truth or anything like that. I'm literally just think, trying to think critically about these things and trying to, to get to a better place. And I'm as you know, happy to be proven wrong as anyone I'm always trying to improve. And it's also one of those things, and, and this is this is a demonstrable cheap shot, but you have a lot of people, uh, you know, quote unquote thought leaders, agency leaders, consultant leaders, whatever it might be, who basically have been saying the same thing for years and years and years. Now, this can mean a couple of things. One, they're 100% correct, unlikely, given that, you know, everything progresses. They don't read at all, or they read too little and too narrowly. I mean, I change my opinions all the time. I don't see that as a, as a weakness. I'm just trying to improve. And that means discovering that actually the stuff that you said last year was actually completely false. Mm. And I know, but I now know why. And I think that's the, again, within complexity, because there, you know, there are no guarantees and no linear causalities. You just have to be humble and, and trying to improve every day. And if you do that, then that's the best you can do. And it goes for the bed and field stuff too. I'm just trying to get to a better place and look at, okay, so these are the problems with the data. And maybe if we at least address these things, you know, if you address the problem first, then you can actually solve it eventually. However, if we just go, yeah, this is all true because I read it somewhere, then we have an issue uh, yeah. and we're not going to get anywhere. Agreed. I also think people need to be open to changing their minds on things in general. Well, yeah, I mean, they have to challenge, you know, not only do they need to challenge everyone, including myself, but they need to challenge themselves. Again, it's the Hitchens point of how do I know what I think I know? Do I really know what do I just think I know? Yeah. Um, and and that's that's key. I'm, you know, it is. I know it's a pain in the ass because, it, it you know, cognitive dissonance is a real bitch to deal with. But nonetheless, it is something that I think maybe uh, one needs to consider, uh, at least if one is trying to get to a better place. And there's there's going to be a lot of that in the manifesto. Again, I'm not claiming any truths. I'm just trying to look at things and with a critical eye. And you know, in the you, there are going to be some provocations in the manifesto. Some of the things you're going to agree with, some of the things you're not going to agree with, and that's perfectly fine. Totally. It's listener question time, JP. Yes. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But we have two for you, starting with Rob. Rob says, no doubt the current pandemic has put a monkey wrench in your globe trotting going ons as a keynote speaker. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, once you are able to travel, where are you hoping to visit? I'm, I've been having conversations about going to Dubai and uh, if I'm lucky, I get to go back to Mumbai and do the Z-Melt, which is one of my favorite conferences. So that is the, the two that I'm looking forward to the most at the moment. That's probably this fall. But I'm, I'm just looking forward to just traveling and meeting people and having drinks and, you know, having Guinnesses with you in Dublin or whatever it might be. Just, you know, 
having a life again really yeah exactly i know i know you like sydney as well you adore sydney is probably oh favorite. yeah yeah one of my favorite cities I, I also i really want to go to tokyo um but uh i haven't gotten any requests from tokyo just yet hint hint nudge nudge if there's any japanese listeners out there you know, in tokyo. i'd love to go to japan yeah cool okay well fingers fingers crossed obviously the world mm-hmm. being less on fire it would be a good start Kira is question two. So she says, other than the highly anticipated manifesto, what can we look forward to from JP in 2021? Well, the manifesto will come up again at the end of this month. There's probably going to be a bit of uh, controversy around that. So I'm probably going to have to defend myself for a bit, maybe get some bodyguards <laughs> and move up to my house up north. But no, jokes aside, um, after that, I'm just probably going to do marketing week stuff as soon as i can travel i'm going to do keynotes again uh, i'm going to do virtual keynotes so if anyone wants me to do that just go ahead and then there are two things that i haven't really mentioned anywhere else i'll, I'll drop another couple of reveals here so the first one is that i'm leaving browser um and i am becoming an independent consultant and there are a couple of reasons why that i don't need to go into but uh, i think it's just best for me at this as this uh, moment in time it does allow me to do something that um, I wanted to for a long time which basically support more with agencies and help them as well so I'm going to become uh, an independent consultant quite soon and the other thing is that I'm writing a book uh, together with with my dear friend and former colleague Gary that I mentioned before unfortunately I cannot talk about what the book really is about uh, other than the stuff that I mentioned in the manifesto and all the problems that I mentioned in the manifesto, uh, we may have come up with a potential solution to those problems, which is a completely new way of approaching things. Uh, and so that's going to be in the book. So I'm going to be writing that and that prob- probably won't come out until, well, maybe early 2022. I'm not sure. But yeah, so that's it. It's just work, 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 um, working with agencies, hopefully more. Uh, and then writing and hopefully being able to go out and socialize and not stay indoors all the time. <laughs> what about you, actually? I wanna, what, what are your plans, Giles? My plans for 2021? Mm-hmm. Ooh, blimey. Well, we've got a few more gas books coming out, which I'm really excited about. Mm-hmm. Isolated Talks is going to evolve in some shape or form. Oh, lovely. Um, what else? A couple of talks. You just, a few sorry talks to interrupt, but you really deserve uh, kudos for that. I think think that the Isolated Talks is an amazing uh, initiative. I, I, you know, I, really, you deserve all the you know praise in the book and then some for that. I, it was an amazing initiative for that. Thank you. That's really kind. I've, I've I've been very flattered to to hear the same from lots of people. I mean, the truth is, it was. You know, I, I, I again, I mentioned this in my in the talk I gave in the uni recently that having good ideas in this industry is, is not the problem. I think as a junior creative, you think it's all about the idea mm. and it really isn't. It's actually getting an idea made and without the likes of Tommy, Glenn and Matt and the support I had from people like you and the likes of Rory Sutherland and Dave Trott, it, it wouldn't be what it is now. So I'm, mm. I, I, it doesn't change the fact that I'm hugely grateful for, 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 you know, all the plaudits and I'll, and I'll unashamedly take them all, but um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a collaboration. But since I have you on, can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah, do it. Go on. I'll edit it out, but go on. (laughs) Ah, keep it in. It's an interesting question, I hope. Um, But so people like you and me, you know, not to put words into your mouth, but I would imagine. Handsome men, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, hung handsome men, right? Um, (laughs) 
we would say that things like a buyer persona would be largely bullshit, right? Yes. Um, yeah. However, would you agree that there is a practical point to it? I think, again, as a means to an end, yes. Mm. I think because this is, and this is something that I try to um, raise, uh, a point I try to raise in the manifesto is also something that is worth considering, you know, after I just blasted uh, the field stuff. But there are certain things, and I alluded to it before, there are certain things I would argue that um, may not be theoretically optimal, but nonetheless have a practical point. And for example, um, if you're working with a junior consultant or a junior consultant, junior creative, you know, fresh out of art school, to your point, surely it would be easier for them to do a create a campaign with Susie 23 in mind than to tell them to, you know, go read How Brands Grow 1 and 2, uh, some complexity theory and maybe a couple of books by, you know, insert person here and come back in five years, right? And, you know, my opinion is that, and it's something that I've sort of, I suppose, evolved to have, but... It's certain things, again, there's the whole thing about rusty snakes, but there are certain things that are demonstrably bullshit, but nonetheless may have a practical use. Would you mm. agree? Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree more with that. That's why, that's my point earlier about a means to an end. I think sometimes the mm. tools in themselves might be hugely flawed, but the output is is successful. Uh, yeah, I almost felt like uh, I was creating a LinkedIn post. Would you agree? Jesus, I just, just got shivered down my spine. I do apologize to all the listeners for even mentioning you know, the words in that order. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, I totally do. I, I had a similar conversation with someone recently who was um, asking a similar question on, I suppose, a, a slightly more in-depth and in, in my uh, personal opinion, a more valuable process of, of brand tracking and, and you know the mm. brand surveys because the marketing funnel, as with so many things, is a metaphor. But within that metaphor, there is potentially huge value to understand your position in a market and, and also to set yeah. your objective goals against. Yeah. And the, the thing is as well, like, as long as we treat certain things as uh, shortcuts or uh, tactical, not hacks, that's the wrong word, but uh, let's say that they're tactical tools more so than strategic tools, then I think it's fine. Uh, as long as we don't take a persona, put it on a strategic level and go, these are our target audiences is, you know, yeah. Bob 24 and, and Susan 55 or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, then I think we're fine. And, and yeah. um, you know, again, whatever works for you in practice, go ahead and do it. If it works in practice, it's irrelevant whether it works in theory. However, I would strongly advise to think about what you're doing and try to learn and improve. And that's yeah. where practice come in, comes in. Yeah, bingo. Yeah. Well, the final part then, JP, of the interview, you've done these before, but I'm going to throw them at you again because um, yes. you've probably forgotten what you answered first time. But I'm, if I hear <laughs> the same answer, I'm not going to, not going to allow it. So uh, yeah. number one is what advice would you give to your younger self? Uh, get into complexity theory earlier, you idiots. Um, that would probably be the first one. And just continue to, to try to think critically. And that uh, alien castling girl proposed to her earlier because she's a keeper. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she might not have said yes earlier. Just uh, well, there. yeah, that's, that's, that's very true. That's very true. But yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. Okay. If, if, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Uh, context-free rules, uh, just because again, most stuff is, is context specific. It works really well if you're dealing with order, but you're pro if you work in marketing, you're probably not going to work with a lot of order. You're probably going to work with more complexity. So you need to balance stuff. 
Uh, and this, again, this simplistic, there, there is a fair bit of reductionism in, in business commentary, which is border, bordering the infantile. And uh, I would banish that forever. And then we'd Lovely. all be in a better place. Yeah. We, we certainly would. We certainly would. Um, number three, then, any books you would recommend? Now, before you answer, you are not allowed to repeat what you said last time, albeit they may well still be great recommendations. And they were The Halo Effect, How Brands Grow, yeah. Eat Your mm-hmm. Greens, and The Long and Short of It. Have you, have you read anything else since that's, that's worth a plug? Um, all right. So I would recommend you read, let's go with Mintzberg's The Rise and Fall of Strategic Planning, just because it introduces emergent strategy and the problems with, with strategic planning. And it does go into detail quite a bit. So you're, you know, certain things are going to apply and certain things are not, but it does provide a fair bit of insight into emergent strategy. And then I would also read anything to do with the Kinevin framework. So that's spelled Cinefin with a C-Y-N-E-F-I-N by Dave Snowden and others, just because it's it's a framework, but it's it's a quote-unquote open source framework. So it's always sort of under development and it deals with complexity, practical complexity in a really good way. And then you just need to apply that strategy. Um, but I would take those two probably. Those are really worth reading. Yeah, perfect. Lovely. So number four then is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we pass yeah. that honor to you, JP. So would you... Um... I'm actually, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, dedicate it to the same person I did last time, Murray. Ah, brilliant. Unfor- yeah, unfortunately, and, and I, I hope and, and, and pray that he's, he's ha- sort of comfortable with me saying this because he's being quite open about it and he's published it on, on yeah. Twitter. But unfortunately, he's taken a turn for the worse and they've stopped his treatment. Uh, and Murray is uh, someone who I think has meant a lot of, and continues to mean a, a lot of, uh, a lot of, lot of things to a lot of us um and for me personally although he would never ever uh agree to this or or, or claim that he claim any credit for it but he's been really really important for me individually going back to when i first wrote for the ipa f works i mean he was instrumental in, in helping me get that article so to where it needed to be and off of the back of that i ended up at marketing week and so on and so forth so he's been a, a really strong supporter a, a really good friend and he continues to be and he's always helpful and and um yeah, I mean, he's the guy to, to dedicate it to uh, wholeheartedly. Well, this is the easiest and biggest dedication I've ever given. This is dedicated to Murray Calder. He's, he, yeah, he, he's, he's, uh, it's been a privilege just getting to know him. He's, he's amazing. Yeah. Uh, one of the best marketers I've ever come across. And I, I don't mean that to be just blow smoke. He's fucking incredible. Yeah, well, I only know him because of you, JP, and I'm hugely grateful for that original introduction. And um mm. Ari was one of the first people I shared the idea for Isolated Talks with, and, and he's largely responsible, although he'll deny it, for pushing me over the line to actually go and make it. Yeah, I mean, he was, I think he wasn't he a guest on your podcast too? He was, he was. Yeah, I, I would highly recommend go back and listening to those and, and uh, also seek him out on Twitter. He's quite active on, on Twitter at Murray Calder, but uh, uh, just yeah. uh, basically a genius, really, really good guy. And, and uh, as good as he is a marketer, he's an even better person. Uh, and again, just a privilege uh, knowing him. He's at Scott Strat guy. We'll we'll link to Murray in this episode links, and we'll link to everything that you've you've, you've shared prior to that. So, um, mm-hmm. thank you, thank you for that. So, wh- how else can people get more JP Caslin? Well, you, you, easiest. I was I was usually I say well, it's, I'm on LinkedIn too, but I I fucking detest LinkedIn. So please do find me on Twitter instead, and I'm at JP Caslin, and that's Caslin with a C with a C. 
Um, and uh, if you want my email, it's on there as well. Uh, it will change uh, once I become a, an independent consultant, leave browser, but you know, I'll update all the stuff there. And of course, as well, if you want the manifesto, just send us an email at hello at browser.se and, and we'll send you the thing too. So that's, yeah, that's it. Amazing. Well, thank you for joining us again. It's been wonderful. And, and it was, um, it's fantastic that you decided to share the manifesto exclusively on Call to Action. So I'm, again, hugely grateful as are all our listeners. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way. This is, I, yeah, I'm probably going to get banned from other podcasts, but this is my favorite podcast to be on. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was both an honor and a pleasure. And uh, I, I hope that, that people found it at least interesting. But yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, finally, thank you to everyone listening. We will include a link to JP's episode, his previous episode, episode two. If you've enjoyed it, please do share it and review the pod. We massively value your support. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. We do get lots of those and we do our best to twist the arm of those of those guests. We're very successful to date to get in touch it's easy to find us online you can check out cta pod on instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co i can't get no call to action Try and I try and I try and I try.